This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Just about two hours outside of Chicago, in a small Michigan resort town with a river running through it, you'll find the tragic story of Eric McGinnis. In 1991, the 16-year-old black boy's body was found in the St. Joseph River. His death ruled an accidental drowning. But the details of that night have been shrouded in mystery for decades. What really happened that night has gone unsolved for 30 years. But now... The St. Joseph Police Department has, in fact, reopened this cold case, all because a new eyewitness saw our special investigation on ABC 57 News two years ago and decided to finally come forward. Chicago author Alex Kotlowitz told the story of the McGinnis case in his 1998 book, The Other Side of the River, a story of two towns, a death and America's dilemma. Alex, welcome to Reset. Hi, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Alex, I want to start not with uh, Eric McGinnis, but the town that he lived in and the one where he was found. Tell us about what's called the Twin Cities. Sure. Uh, somewhat ironically called the Twin Cities. So on the north side of the St. Joseph River is Benton Harbor, a town of roughly 10,000 people, very distressed, uh, predominantly black. And in some ways, it's as if you've taken uh inner city neighborhood from a large city and just plopped it into this beautiful landscape. And then on the south side of the St. Joe River is St. Joseph, which is a, a somewhat smaller town of about 8,000, predominantly white and very prosperous. Um, and I was drawn to these two places, not because they were some anomaly, because I think they're so emblematic of how most of us live, which is, you know, so separate and so deeply unequal. Well, remind us uh, why you took on this story in the first place. Like, what was it about Eric's story that compelled you to write a book? I was working at the time, this is many years ago, some 30 years ago, at the Wall Street Journal, and it was right in the wake of the Rodney King verdict. Um, and to remind listeners, you know, Rodney King was a motorist, a black motorist who had been stopped by the state police in California and was brutally beaten and was all caught on videotape. And what was so striking about the response to that moment is it was this kind of Rashomon of race. You know, if you were black in this country, um, you came to that moment and saw a brutal beating. And if you, for many whites, what they saw was a motorist who resisted the police and was subdued by them. Um, And the police were all acquitted and Los Angeles erupted, the black community in Los Angeles erupted. And I was looking for a story that would help 
I think, us reflect on that moment. Um, and I found this story of Eric McGinnis. And what brought me to those two towns, outside of the fact of this great disparity, was how these two communities came to the death of Eric McGinnis from such different perspectives. You know, virtually everybody in Benton Harbor, the black town, was still is convinced that Eric died as a result of foul play because he had been dating a white girl, which, in fact, he had. And virtually everybody in the white town was and still is convinced that Eric died accidentally, that mm-hmm. he, you know, apparently had broken into a car and stole $44. And the thinking goes is that in an effort to avoid the police, he jumped into that river and tried to swim it to get home to avoid the police. You know, this moment that has everything to do with your own personal and collective experiences. So the narrative largely depends on which side of the river you live on. Right. So, Alex, why have St. Joseph investigators now reopened the case? So there's a gentleman has come forward um, who I've spoken to briefly um, who claims to have witnessed Eric's final moments. And I just know the sort of broad brush outlines of uh, he wasn't allegedly wasn't involved in it, but saw Eric chased by some white teens and allegedly. Um, and so uh, the police have clearly taken it seriously enough um, that on the 30th anniversary of Eric's death, they reopened the case and created a, a task force of the St. Joe Police Department and two other law enforcement agencies in the area. I'm taking your your words here in, in the piece that you wrote. Uh, you, you said you had become obsessed with this case, you know, 30 years ago. So as someone who was so obsessed with this story, now decades later hearing this new information, what were your thoughts? I thought in some ways, finally, because I always had questions. I think a lot of people did about whether, in fact, Eric had, you know, gone into that river voluntarily or had fallen in. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I still feel like we need to reserve judgment. I mean, I also will say that I, my inclination was to sort of wade back into those waters, but I think I'm going to leave it to the police yeah. <laughs> at this point. Um, Had you crossed paths with this eyewitness before? You know, it's funny when uh, I heard about this, I went back, I get, over the years, I've gotten emails and phone calls from people uh, claiming to have some tip, and I went back through my emails, and it turns out that he, in fact, had emailed me seven years ago and was in some ways asking for help. You know, we talked about how it had been on his conscience all those years. And I emailed him back and then didn't hear from him again. I I should say the other thing, which is not in the story, is that also going back through my emails, I realized a couple of years ago I had also heard from his nephew who asked me if if I had ever talked spoken with his uncle, who for the past 25 years had been telling this story over and over again. You heard from whose nephew? Um, from from the alleged The, the alleged eyewitness. Okay. Yeah. So clearly this is a story that he has told over and over again. And I think it's now up to the police to determine whether there's any credibility or veracity there. Alex, you spoke with, of course, a lot of community residents on both sides of this river in order to be able to tell the story. Which of the conversations would you say have have stayed in your memory most and and why? You know, I spent a lot of time with the detective on the case. So white man who I came to know very well. um, And, you know, I know that it was a case that really troubled him. And I really, it was interesting when I would go into St. Joe, the white town, and tell people what I was working on, 
they would look at me and say, well, why do you want to write about race around here? It's not an issue, you know, um, which I think is probably the response of so much of white Americans is this notion that race no longer matters. And yet Jim Reeves, this detective, was willing to spend time with me. And, and I just really appreciated his openness. He really struggled with this case, I think, more than people realize. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that also stayed with me is that in Benton Harbor in the black community, it was the elders in that town who were most adamant um, that Eric had been killed. Um, And they would tell me, well, you know, this happened before here. We had a lynching. And and I thought, what are you talking about? I mean, I didn't know of any, you know, there weren't many lynchings in in Michigan that I knew of. I had certainly never heard of anything in the towns. And of course, when I began to dig into the history, you know, I found two episodes that clearly had been passed on through generations. One was the story in 1924 of two black men accused of raping a white woman who were being held at the county jail and a mob of a thousand white men uh, surrounded the jail in an effort to try to lynch them and were held off by the sheriff at the time. Um, and then 10 years later, there was the story of a black man who had uh, allegedly stolen a car and was found uh, uh, hung by his tie in the county jail. And there was always a great deal of suspicion about what happened to him. And those stories get passed on through generations. And I think now Eric McGinnis has become the touchstone for many in that community. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I just went back up there and, you know, one of the people I met with was the mayor of Benton Harbor, Marcus Muhammad, who it turns out grew up with Eric. Eric would cut his hair. They played basketball together. In fact, uh, Mayor Muhammad told me that it was so painful, though, his death, that he still had trouble reading my book. Um, but it was interesting. Um, at one point, when I, he has a son, a 15-year-old son, I asked him whether his son goes into St. Joseph, and he told me that he won't allow his son to go into into St. Joseph and so the white town Even because still. he worries about what might happen to him. Yeah. And that has everything to do with the, the memory of Eric's Well, that, that says a lot, that this is, this is still relevant and, and still an issue in, in 2021 because another thing it's not hard to see here as far as resemblances, Alex, is, is this story and that of Emmett Till's. Right. You have a, a right. black team, uh, predominantly white area. Their body was found in, in a nearby river. Um, even the element that you, you mentioned earlier, McKinnis, uh, he was dating a white girl. Uh, he was even seen having danced with her at, at a club. Right. And, and Emmett Till was supposedly whistling at this white woman. So. Right. 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 And again, I want to be a little careful here because we don't know what happened to Eric. Um, but certainly, you know, the mayor, Mayor Mohammed, on the day that they announced the reopening of the case, he, as you said in a tweet, you know, uh, compared this to the Emmett Till case. Uh, it's what resonated for him as well. Um, we are also in this moment, Alex, where, you know, the national conversation is very much centering inequality segregation. Um, Just look over the last year, we're talking a lot about race, right? So when you think about Eric McGinnis's story, what hasn't changed? Before I talk about what hasn't changed, what has changed, and I can, because for me, one of the remarkable things about going up to those two towns is 
that I met with the mayor in St. Joe, and essentially, you know, he's a guy who ran the Rotary Club up there for years, um, and uh, and he read my book, you know, some 25 years ago, and was moved enough by it that he be, he ran for a public office, and he is now um, talks about the history of systemic and institutional racism in this country, and. He, in fact, along with Lynn Todman at the local healthcare agency, has brought in historians to talk about the history of race and racism. I mean, essentially, they're kind of, I don't know if they think about it this way, but they're talking about critical race theory um, in this white town. And he, Mike Gary, in fact, along with the mayor from Benton Harbor in the wake of George Floyd's murder, led a Black Lives Matter protest over the bridge that connects these two towns. a rally of a thousand people. So I was really kind of moved by that. Having said that, I think what's clear, and Mike Gary, the mayor of St. Joe, will talk about this a lot, is the incredible disparities between those two communities. You know, Benton Harbor's community is still as deeply distressed, yeah. um, where the you know median income is twenty thousand compared to sixty some thousand in St. Joseph, and it speaks to the great inequities of this country along racial lines. And that hasn't changed. Well, any idea when we can expect further updates on the investigation? I don't. I'm kind of waiting. I, it's funny, I, I periodically will check and just see if there's any if there's any news, and I haven't heard anything. So I did talk to the police chief up there and have a very cordial conversation with him, but he was also yeah. uh, very reticent to reveal much. I can imagine. What, well, what questions still remain for you, even? Well, I think in the end, if, you know, the question is, uh, was he in fact uh, pushed into that river or forced into that river by by others? Um, and I hope that we'll get some answers to that. That is Chicago writer Alex Kotlowitz. Thank you, Alex. Sasha, thanks for having me. Big breaking news, conversations around the arts, stories that tell us more about who we are, That's what we bring you every day here on Reset. For more, go to wbez.org slash reset or tell your smart speaker to play WBEZ's Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.